0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, church. Great to be with you on this Lord's day. And today we have the blessing of starting a brand new study in God's word. You know that we like to move verse by verse through various books of the Bible and in prayer and waiting on the Lord, I've decided that we're going to, as a church, move through the book of 1 Peter together. So if you'd turn there in your Bibles and there's absolutely no shame in going to the table of contents and looking it up for yourself, uh, but get yourself situated in 1 Peter near the end of the New Testament. We're gonna start this beautiful book together today. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, I just wanted to let you know that we're continuing the process of shifting our church gatherings indoors in accordance with the guidelines that the county has set before us. We, of course, still have the online service that you're partaking of Uh, right now. We also will have an outdoor service for the foreseeable future for those who prefer it, We just started our 8 a.m. indoor service last week, and we are calculating and trying to decide when to move our next service indoors. It might be the 9.30 service or the 11.30 service that we shift into an indoor uh, environment here at the church. So be praying for us as we try to navigate all the different restrictions and uh, numbers, uh, cap limits, and all of that that we're trying to adhere to. Uh, But we're excited that it seems that the numbers uh, for COVID are drastically uh, decreasing and that God is giving us victory and that we can move into having a great summer and fall uh, together. And so we're praying uh, for that. But today, let's turn our attention to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We're just going to look at the first couple of verses today. And I want you to imagine, if you can, the ancient civilization of northern Turkey, Uh, Greek culture in that time, and the Roman Empire from their positions just across the Aegean Sea in Europe have begun to heavily influence your community. Roman roads, taxation, and military are ever-present. And so is Greek thought. Everyone in your community there in northern Turkey, as you use your imagination today, everyone's gone along with Greek and Roman way of life. And times seem to be, in one sense, improving. The age is heading in a specific direction, and you are caught up in its wave. Then one day, with no announcement, a messenger arrives to your small town. He's not there to trade like nearly all the other travelers who pass through. Instead, he has news to proclaim. It isn't a decree from Caesar that he's there to proclaim, though. It's about a man named Jesus. Jesus is God, he says, and he became one of us, the preacher declares to you. Then he died as a substitute for you, rose on the third day, and as this glorious gospel is declared to you, you find yourself agreeing and believing and wanting this Jesus. His spirit then fills you, and now your life is changed. Now you find yourself part of a new community within your larger community. You and the other Christians in your town gather together as one on Sundays and in smaller settings throughout the week. As you all study scripture and worship the God who wrote them, you relearn everything that you thought you knew. Soon you realize that your views and your lifestyle are incongruent with the Roman and Greek way that you'd previously adopted. And you're not the only one to begin to realize that you're different. So do the people in your town. They suspect that you don't think like them, and they certainly can see that you don't live like them. People in your community have always represented all sides of thought, but you and the other Christians have embraced something different than everybody else, a third way. Jesus is your king. He's worthy of your worship, and he asks you, to both love others and to tell them about him. But pretty soon you start noticing in your town that the fact that you're different is leading the majority to turn against you. Their rejection of you and your other fellow Christians isn't catastrophic at first but it's subtle as they start to turn their backs on you. You worry that you might be physically harmed one day because of your Christianity mainly because they're willing to say such angry and hateful words about you and your Lord. Now you can't tell where all this venom is coming from. You've tried very hard to love your community and contribute to your community, but the animosity is growing. You feel confused as to what to do. And the Roman Senate and emperor seem unconcerned with your small minority, and any concern they do show seems to indicate that they might blame you for their failures. So you and others in your community start to worry. Will we lose our sources of income? Will we be roundly rejected from public discourse? Will this ridicule turn into laws that call for our persecution? Will we be harmed? And if any of this happens to us, how should we live? Just as your questions and the pressure hit a fever pitch, a new messenger arrives in town. He's a Christian and his name is Silvanus and he's come from Rome. Now you know that there's Christians in Rome so you wonder how they're dealing with the rising opposition to the faith in the mother of all cities. How are they handling increasing hostility and blame from culture? Are they fighting back? Are they retreating to the countryside? Are they conforming to the demands of the citizenry? Well, Sylvanus proceeds to tell you that he has a letter for you from no less than Peter, a letter designed to show you how to live when society rejects you. now you can 't believe it. Peter, you of course know the name. he was jesus 's top apostle, the leader of the 12, the first preacher, the day the church was born, and the one with the keys to unlock the gospel to the Gentile world. And that's exactly what Peter did. Ten years after Jesus died and rose, lived again, Peter died to his preferences and spoke the words of life to a small group of Gentiles on Israel's northern coast. And when they believed, the spirit fell. Everyone saw it, and soon it was confirmed the gospel news is for the whole world. That's how the gospel eventually got to you in your little town in northern Turkey. And now Peter has written to you and other Christians along the trade route of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the next morning, it's Sunday, and you gather with all the other Christians in your church. After some prayer, And singing to God, Silvanus stands up with the papyrus scroll in his hand. He unfurls it, he prays, and he begins to read. And this is what it says in the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now the first thing that I want you to notice from this brief little introduction is the author of our letter. As I've said, Peter was the first apostle, but in this letter, I want you to think of him as the first apostle. Exile, the first exile. You see, by this time, Peter had abandoned the comforts and confines of Jerusalem for the city of Rome. Jerusalem for Peter was familiar, Rome was unknown. Jerusalem was filled with people from the same cultural background. Rome was filled with every nation and tribe and tongue. Jerusalem's morals were similar to Christianity's morals. In fact, Christianity's morals stemmed from Jerusalem's Judaistic morals. But Rome's morals were upside down and non-existent. In Jerusalem, Peter had influence. So many people in Jerusalem had come to Jesus as a result of the apostles' ministry. But in Rome, Peter was without power or status of any kind. And Peter felt the strangeness Of his new town. When he ends this letter in chapter 5, verse 13, he calls Rome Babylon. This is his way of referencing a time in Israel's history when they were carried away as exiles to the country of Babylon. Life was so different there, and godlessness abounded in that city. How in the world could they live in Babylon? Now, to help those ancient Old Testament exiles, God sent a prophet named Jeremiah. He told the people of Israel to submit to the life of exile by building houses, planting gardens, marrying, establishing families right there in Babylon. He even said, Jeremiah 29, verse seven, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you find your welfare. Jeremiah then went on to warn God's people about false prophets who would tell them to escape their exile. These liars would convince God's people that God didn't want his kids living in such conditions. But Jeremiah told them God wanted them to submit to exile until God rescued them. For he said, I know the plans I have for you, Jeremiah 29 verse 11 declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And I read these words from Jeremiah because Peter seems to have styled his whole letter after Jeremiah's ministry. All through his correspondence, Peter will encourage the church and encourage us to endure periods of exile well in Christ's name. First, we will discover in the first chunk of the letter that he will tell us about the joy of the exile calling. We belong to Jesus, we have a great salvation, so we rejoice even in suffering for his name. Second, in the second chunk of the letter, Peter will tell us of the life of exile, describing how we must live in these exilic Conditions. He'll urge us to abstain from sin, submit to authority, and do work and family for God's glory. In the third section of this letter, Peter will talk to us about the pain of exile. Everyone suffers, but Peter tells us believers suffer for righteousness. And if we hear the ridicule or feel the fists of those hostile to Christ, we have to endure. And finally, fourth, Peter will close the letter by describing the community, the church, that the exiled believers must build. The church is our new home, our new society in a sense, and we must press into it all the more as rejection increases. The idea of doing the Christian life alone becomes even more impossible for exiled believers. Okay, but Peter was game for this exilic brand of Christianity. Because Jesus had risen from the dead. You know, it changed everything for Peter. His failures and shortcomings were turned into channels for God's grace. And he'd been restored for a purpose. Because Jesus rose, Peter had uh, to reach the people that he's ministering to. So after 10 years of ministry in Jerusalem, Peter packed up his family and ministered in various Roman provinces. Jesus foretold that Peter's ministry would end with a martyr's death. So Peter had a decision. He could run and hide, or he could run right into the danger. And he chose the latter because if Christ had risen, Peter knew that he also would would rise. Death would really ultimately only hasten Peter's ultimate victory. So Peter went out and made the good news the focus of his life. He made good on the new name that Jesus had given him. His birth name was Simon, but Jesus did what God God had done to all the saints or many saints of old and renamed his man. Peter means rock because Peter confessed foundational truths and became a foundational man who did foundational things for the church. Now Peter referred to himself in this letter as an Apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, when Paul said at the beginning of his letters that he was an Apostle, it often indicated he'd have to defend his position or correct his audience. But when Peter said it, no one argued. Everybody knew that Peter was an Apostle. If Peter's not an Apostle, no one's an Apostle. He held this special position that Jesus reserved for him and was faithful to be an authoritative witness and author of the truth. Like the Old Testament prophets, these men would speak words that shaped civilizations. But as an apostle, Peter was exile number one. He knew what it was to be outcast from society because of Jesus. You could say he learned about being rejected from both the right and the left because of his belief in Christ. The right, fashioned by Judaism, did not like the grace and forgiveness for all nations that Peter preached. And the left, formed by much of Roman society, did not like the restrictive morality that Peter taught. And neither liked to think of Jesus as Lord. And for that, Peter is exile number one in this letter. Okay, but the second thing I want you to see in these introductory verses is the recipients. Peter called them the elect exiles of the dispersion there in verse 1, and it's an area that we know of as northern Turkey uh, today. Now the title is a very Jewish title because in the Old Testament when the Assyrians and Babylonians attacked Israel, they were dispersed and they became known as the Diaspora. They had been scattered throughout the world. But Peter takes that title and he lays it firmly on the Jewish and Gentile church of that region and era. We know that he's writing to a predominantly Gentile church because of the way that he'll describe their lives before Christ later on in this letter. They'd lived sensuously, they'd followed their passions and their old life, they'd partied hard intoxicating themselves and engaging in the kinds of acts that alcohol emboldens. Peter said that these Christians had been ransomed from feudal ways that the previous generations had taught them to live in, and now they'd become God's people. All this is evidence that these were mostly Gentile people. You'd not read those kind of descriptions about Jewish converts. This helps us know, brothers and sisters, what made this original group into exiles. It's what makes us exiles today. First, they believed things that made them exiles, and second, they lived in a way that made them exiles. Both their beliefs and their lifestyles were looked down upon by the larger society, so they became exiles. Now, you might be wondering about the kind of marginalization that these uh, Christians that Peter wrote to were experiencing. And you might even be wondering with a little bit of suspicion, you know, it's common for us in Western churches today to make comments about how, you know, the persecution that they felt or that so many brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world are feeling today is nothing compared to the societal pressure that we are experiencing in the West. We're not experiencing physical persecution, which is so much worse than, you know, name-calling or public ridicule. And we might suspect, entering into the book of First Peter, that. These believers had it far worse than we have it today. You see, Western churches uh, often don't have persecution physically, partly because of our history. We've often been tied to governments and states and civilizations. Sometimes we have political influence in history. Sometimes we ruled over monarchs. But what happened in many of those societies is that nominal Christianity was encouraged to spread. Many people were Christian in name only. But though the church had influence in these Western societies, secularism has now taken the lead. Still, since so many identify as Christian in name, Christianity grips onto a semi-favored status. I think the evidence demonstrates that many who say they are Christian in the West are not Christian. Many who say they are Christians also say they don't believe the gospel. They don't believe in God. They don't even attend, let alone belong to, a local church of any kind. No, the number of people who believe the gospel, hold the cardinal doctrines of Christianity, and actually act like Christians, as the Bible describes them, are a very small number. But in places like in the West, because of the historical relationship we've had with the church, persecution is not yet physical in nature. You see, Christians in many nations are beaten and economically disadvantaged because of their faith, but this hasn't happened broadly yet in the Western world. So we might be tempted to tune out First Peter because they certainly must have had a level of persecution so much more severe than ours but I would say not so fast. The hostility that's described all throughout this letter is, listen to me now, verbal. Verbal slander and malicious accusations. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 12. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter two fifteen. for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people so it's something spoken that will be put to silence first peter 3 verse 9 do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling first peter 3:16 have a good conscience so that when you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame now hearing those descriptions should make us realize that we are right now entering into the kind of territory that Peter thought his readers were in. I know recently I heard a story of a Christian man who was on his company's softball team, and he had a great time with everybody on the team, lots of friends. And everybody knew that he was a believer. But one night he hopped onto Facebook, and he was horrified to watch most of his teammates berating Christians and ridiculing the Christian faith is little more than belief in fairies and goblins. And of course, you could go online and find millions of similar cases and examples. This brand of ridicule, by the way, the verbal kind of ridicule, has always been around against the church. You know, it's difficult to know precisely what people were saying about these original Christians. But there is some interesting evidence that archeology span has unearthed. In ancient Rome, in the second century, carved into plaster on the side of a building is a picture, Roman graffiti. It's a crude drawing of a man with a donkey's head dying on a cross. Below the man is another man lifting up his hand, looking as if he's worshiping this figure on the cross. And the caption that somebody wrote almost 2,000 years ago is, "Alexamenos worships his God. It's ridiculing Christians, ridiculing believers for their faith. It probably even had a little hashtag to circulate around ancient Rome. Okay, but Peter, what he wanted to do was comfort his audience. And that's what this letter is going to do. Comfort believers who are beginning to realize that they are exiles Uh, because of and for their faith. And I hope that you're beginning to realize that this audience that Peter's writing to includes you and me. All through the letter, he'll encourage us with the truth about who we are, and he'll allude to our identity even in this brief introduction. Now, the overarching encouragement Peter gives comes from his description of these exiles in the very first sentence. Look again at verse one. He calls them elect. To be elect means that we are recipients of God's grace, those that God has called to his love. He has prompted us to trust him, and we have received his call. Now, this is not a theme that's meant to spin you out or shake your faith. It's not meant to be taken out of context and placed into a sterile or unfeeling theological system. No way. Being elect, that doctrine, is meant to bring celebration from the Christian heart. God chose Adam. God chose Noah. God chose Abraham. God chose Israel. And if you're in Christ, God chose you. And Peter wanted his readers to celebrate how the entire triune God had chosen them. He did this by alluding to the Father and the Spirit and the Son in the second verse that we read today. What did the Father do? Well, he said in verse 2, he elected us according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I don't think this means that God knew that we would choose him, so he chose us first. I suspect what it means is that he knows, he knows us, he knows his plans, and we are part of those plans. These suffering believers would have celebrated that the Father knew them and his plans for them. But what did the Spirit do? Well, Peter tells us in verse two that the Spirit sets us apart for sanctification. This word often refers to the process of spiritual growth during the Christian life. But it is used here to describe the act of setting us apart to God at the point of salvation. When these beleaguered Christians trusted Christ, the Spirit set them apart for God. Like a special dish used for a special purpose, you know, I'm thinking of my daily favorite coffee mug that I like to use, God, when he set us apart, set us aside for a special purpose, and this comforts us during times of persecution. But what did the Son do? Well, it says in verse 2 that the Son chose us for obedience to him and for the sprinkling of his blood. This means we're chosen by God to receive the gospel of Christ, obey the king who is Christ, and declare the gospel of his blood to the world. These early believers would have been encouraged to know that their trials were not in vain. God had a mission for them to engage in that was based on all that they'd received about Jesus. And all this talk from Peter about our identity in God is meant to encourage us If we feel alien to our world, at least we know God accepts us. If we feel we have fewer opportunities to root down in culture because of our faith, at least we know we have roots in God. And if we feel like we aren't given a place or purpose by society, at least we know that God has given us his gospel and a mission to proclaim it. You see, these original hearers would have been greatly encouraged to know that despite all their trials and rejection and the difficulty of being a Christian in their world at that time, they belonged to God. This is important. I don't know if you remember the first time you ever rode a roller coaster but that went upside down, but I can remember the first time. It was at the Santa Clara's Great America my dad and I rode the demon together. I was probably like seven or eight years old. And I remember being terrified. I didn't understand physics and how I'd be pinned to my seat because of you know, the velocity at which we were traveling as we made that loop. I thought there was a good chance I might fall out of the roller coaster. But once we got in to that little car and they strapped me in and put that harness around me and brought down those, that shoulder restraint, I knew that I was firmly connected to the car and I trusted that that car was firmly connected to the track. In a similar way, if believers understand how firmly attached we are to God, then we'll be strengthened and calm when persecution hits. The ride might be rough, but we are secure in him. All right, let me wrap up this introductory teaching on 1 Peter by concluding, by looking at one last thing. I want to show you the theme that I've chosen for our study of 1 Peter. I'm calling this series The Grace of Exile. And I've taken this from a little verse at the very end of the letter. Paul, Peter, excuse me, con- concluded this letter by saying in chapter 5, verse 12, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So that, what that means is that Peter saw everything that he wrote in this letter as an ex- exhortation and a declaration of the true grace of God. You know, if you take time to read this letter, and I'd encourage you, you should read this letter this week. It's five chapters long. Um, it'll take you 15 to 20 minutes to just read it in one sitting. What you'll discover is, is that it's a description of the life of exile. Hardships abound, ridicule exists, decisions to live unlike everyone else are present. And through it all, though it's a life on the fringes, life as a religious minority, Peter said, in conclusion, that it's a life full of God's true grace. Now, this might be confusing to us because grace means favor. And when living on the margins of society rather than at the center of it, it's hard to feel like we're favored by God. But I think Peter wants us to get excited about the possibilities that come with being in the vast minority. The scales of dead religion and nominal Christianity fall off because there's no good reason for people to pretend to be Christian. What's left is a purer, holier, more vibrant church. It might be smaller, but at least least it's not dead. You see, alive is grace, alive is fun, alive is a blessing. And I think this is a shift that this book, 1 Peter, can help us make. You know, like I said earlier, it's been a long time since the true church, not just the, you know, church in name, but the true church, real believers. It's been a long time since we've been the majority in the West, though we still often struggle to believe it. But we've got to shift. We've got a shift in our hearts from maintenance to mission, from settling to sojourning, from accepted to alien. I think it's the only way forward. And I think Peter wants us to sense an excitement, to feel excitement about that possibility. But this shift is hard. You know, it's tempting to try to dominate the culture as a Christian majority, but it's exciting to learn to live and engage culture as a Christian minority. I believe we are where these exiles who received this letter were at, by and large. You know, I mean, This is California, after all. We are exiles. All that said, let me conclude by stating some goals that I think we can reasonably have for our study of 1 Peter. You know, why would I study a book of the Bible? Why would I want to learn a certain passage of Scripture? So let's think about this for for this book, because Lord willing, I'm gonna take my time um, going through this book. It's, It's very dense. I think there's something like, 60 or 70 exhortations scattered throughout the book it's it's a very exhortive kind of book and each one kind of deserves its own meditation so it's an easy book to take slowly and here are four things there's many things i hope happen during our time looking at this book but let me give you four things i hope to have happen as we study first peter together number one my hope is that we would learn to rejoice so much in what we have in christ That we would never compromise to get what we can of the world. You know, one of the greatest protections against theological or lifestyle error is being fully and completely satisfied in and with Jesus. And Peter is gonna totally take that tone right out of the gate starting with our study next week. Number two, My prayer is that we would learn better how to bless our community with the gospel, that we'd learn better how to bless our community with the gospel. And what I mean by that is that the days of people coming to church gatherings when searching for something are really largely over. You know, people with a church background, maybe who've run from God previously, uh, they might. Wander back into our public gatherings. You know, maybe their parents raised them to to be believers, but they rebelled for a season. They might come to a church gathering and search for something. But that group is actually getting smaller statistically every single year. Uh, we have to think a little bit more, according to the Luke 14, 23 phrase, of going out into the highways and the hedges with the gospel. And so I'm hoping and praying that as we wrestle with 1 Peter, we'll see some fresh ways to be bringing the gospel to the community rather than just kind of hoping that the community comes to us to hear the gospel. My third prayer is that we would discover fresh biblical ways to build up our gospel community, the church, so that we can lean into each other during the difficult strain of social rejection. You know, one antidote to rejection from the community is the acceptance of Jesus's community. And I think we're moving well past the days of, you know, attending church twice a month as like our total pushback against the pressures that are on us from society. I think we need a lot more. We really need each other. We need the word. So I hope that this book, 1 Peter, reminds us of biblical strategies that we can cultivate as a church in the years to come that will help us cultivate a stronger and healthier gospel-centered church community. And then number four, to wrap this up today, my prayer is that as we study this book, those of us in our church family who feel the strongest sense of social exclusion because of their belief in Jesus would be comforted by the life that Peter describes. You know, for example, this is just one group. I think of those of you that are serving and studying on university campuses. You know, there's a strong intolerance of the Christian faith on many campuses and in many classrooms. So I pray that this book, 1 Peter, will give you the encouragement that you need, first of all, but also will give you the wisdom and discernment that you need To help you navigate your setting and there are of course many similar environments some major some minor some physical you know some corporate your job some digital just the digital space and i hope that this book will help you learn to navigate all of them well as a christian so i hope you can tell that i'm very excited to get into the book of first peter together because as peter said in his opening verse i believe that we are the elect exiles dispersed and scattered in this community the Monterey peninsula and beyond for a purpose and i hope and pray that first peter helps us dial in connect to that purpose really well god bless you church hope you have a wonderful week i'll see you again next sunday as we get into first peter chapter 1 verse